Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast uh, recorded on Gayomago land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, and I thank them for their ongoing support. Uh, my guest today is uh, Johanna Piantupa. Welcome, Johanna. Thank you. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Johanna, we, we are discussing your book today, your re- or pretty still recently released book, is uh, Redfern, Aboriginal Activism in the 1970s, which is out through Aboriginal Studies Press. Uh, I'm holding it up to the camera, but this is a podcast. Uh, but just, <laughs> so, it's nice to see the book. It's nice to see. Imagine you're looking at a book with a really wonderful cover. So um, Google it if you haven't if you haven't seen it or you don't already own it. Um, Joanna, let's just, maybe before we get to the book, just a little bit about yourself, what your kind of day-to-day is, what your your teaching uh, and professional life looks like, um, just as a, a way in before we, uh, to get us toward the book. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I guess, um, I, mean, I grew up in Finland, so I'm a settler migrant in Australia, but I've been now being here for um, over 20 years permanently. And I work at UNSW at Nuragili Indigenous Studies, where I lecture in Indigenous Studies, and I'm a historian by background. Um, academic background so um, that's where my um, my book comes from um, so yeah so I yeah and I I work there do research but also teach courses in gender indigenous um, studies in gendered identity and also um, particular political history and indigenous history is my focus area yeah thanks for that so then I guess the book what I guess how did the idea first come to you that this, you know, this this particular place, this particular decade, um, how did it kind of come about that this is something you were going to spend a bunch of time researching and and recording? Sure. Uh, so I was um, so I've started sort of learning more about Australian history and particularly Indigenous history. Um, I have been a backpacker to Australia and that's how I kind of first came across with it. But when I was an exchange student and then as I was reading more and learning more, I realised that this was an area that there was not written much written about. A lot of uh, research ended up in the sort of tent embassy and also focused on the dem- demonstrations and the public protest. And I was and, – and a lot of sort of um, – you know, you, when you kind of do reading and you do research and you always end up in the same place. So I ended up always ending up in Redfern, which made sense also because I was in Sydney, so it was that uh, convenient. And I was also guided by uh, some um, sort of senior academics here, like um, Dr. Wendy Brady, who um, I worked with in the beginning. Um, so I realised that there was not much work on the organisations and yet they formed such a significant part of... Um, of the history of Aboriginal activism and also still today play a really important role in Aboriginal affairs in Australia. So, and, and it was a very exciting period, 1970s in, in Australia, in the world, but also in, in inner city Redfern. So, yeah, it just drew me. Yeah, yeah and I think of it, and I think, you know, uh, exciting definitely comes across as you, as you uh, through the book, as you chronicle what was happening, yes, both in that broader um social and cultural changes and we'll get into a bit of that but particularly even just the organizations and groups and individuals that you're focusing on there is this real feel of 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 excitement and possibility that's that's emerging um in the stories being told in the book so i guess you know in terms of the broad we write a book so often yes as you say you're drawn to it it keeps coming up and and we want to pull these strings as academics and historians, it's that learning of like, okay, pull the strings and see what keeps coming. As you started to form it and started to 
send it out into the world, I guess. What, what were some of the hopes you had for, for putting this, this book together? Some hopes you felt that when people start to pick this up, what were you hoping people would really experience and feel and, and be led toward? Yeah, oh, definitely that excitement and the way that the hope that was in, in the area and in, in the air, in, in the atmosphere at the time, I, I really wanted to be able to capture that. And, and so much was going and, and so much hard work, so much creative uh, thinking, innovation and very brave, very brave activism. Um, but also I thought it was very interesting, important to um, highlight that strong Aboriginal history, the continuing Aboriginal history in Redfern, in inner city Sydney, um, that is continually undermined um, in, in, in sort of wider discourses where still in Australia today, Aboriginality is seen as something that doesn't necessarily belong to in the city, but it's something that exists outside, um, outside cities and away from settled centres. Um, and also, um, yeah, to justice to these organisations and their activism and the achievements that they made. And really also all that work that went to, to these organisations and setting up the legal service, the medical service and so forth, and all the supporters that came together. So the sort of wider networks and the, um, as I like to call it, the multifaceted phase of activism at the time. Yeah, thank you for that. So one of the key things that the book kind of sets up early is you're going to look at a series of organisations within Redfern that were being established in Redfern in the 70s as a way of showing, I guess in some ways, how the the larger demonstrations of the time, and particularly let's say the tent embassy uh, in Canberra, how those are related, how those are so interconnected, that what was happening in terms of establishing these community organisations, these legal groups, the medical services, childcare, the theatre, all, all were kind of almost working to the same ends and creating, you know, almost the ecosystem in which these demonstrations and the embassy emerged from. That, 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 that you know, sometimes the focus is just on what's really upfront in that public thing and not seeing the work that was happening in the community that was forming um, that made it possible. So can you talk to us a little bit about how yeah, you see this interrelationship, interconnectedness um, between these kind of organisations and, and the community around them and, yes, those kind of demonstrations. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that's a really great question. It's a really good point because they're, of course, strongly interrelated and, and support um, in the way that demonstrations raise that public awareness that these organisations worked within the communities, strengthening them. And... Um, and these organisations, well, in the 1960s, um, as Professor Chika Dixon told me when I interviewed him, people really went to the street, uh, streets and there was that sort of sense of being able to um, make an impact by voicing out your concerns, getting that attention. But also if we think about Tent Embassy particularly, um, all these organisations, or most of them, preceded the Tent Embassy. So the legal service started in 1970 and the medical service in 1971. Black Theatre had its first show in 1972. Uh, that was actually, and actually they did perform at the Tent Embassy, but it had been practising and, and doing rehearsals already from maybe late 60s. So there was already a lot of going on. And, of course, a lot of demonstrations in, 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 in Sydney as well, um, like Black, Black Moratorium. But Tent Embassy was set up um, by people who were active in Redfern um, and with, with these organisations. So um, 
it was in a guess it was the public face of the activism um, that occurred in the, within these organisations, and an essential part of an important part of it. But still, yeah, a lot of lot of work happened within the organisations themselves that mm. served the communities in a different way. Yeah. One thing that kind of comes through that's, I guess, something that links, again, both those demonstrations in the embassy and the organisations and and kind of is a line that goes across the organisations is the con- the conversation of self-determination, um, that that's really in the foreground of so much of what's happening in all these groups. Um, and, you know, even while having their, I guess, portfolios or what have you of what they're focusing on, self-determination really runs through you know, the energy, the culture, the, the, the what's going on there. So can you talk to us a bit about, about that, how that was, you know, emerging both in this kind of broader sense and how it shaped how these various groups um, sought to organise themselves and, and sought to determine their priorities? Yeah, of course. So self-determination, I guess, first it's important to acknowledge that um, First Nations um, have since the invasion asserted their self-determination, their sovereignty in different ways by um, armed resistance, by uh, trying to expand or trying to hold on to their ability to um, maintain that um, that aspect, of, to, to be self-determining. Um, and in the 1920s, um, and um, John Maynard writes about um, his grandfather who um, voiced... Um, the desire to be self-determined, self to have self-determination, uh, which related also to the sort of global histories at the time in the um, after the uh, First World War. But then, when we come to sort of 1960s, there's also the global First Nations movements and their push for self-determination and sovereignty, as well as the Black Power movement that pushes um, ideas of um, of uh, control and ability to, to determine. Your, the way you want to look after your people, look after your communities uh, without interference or without input from um, non-African American people or in the context of First Nations, uh, not, not without interference of the, uh, of the settler, um, settler. Well, that would be uh, Americans like, in that context. So in Australia, those translated in the activism of Aboriginal people in, in, in Redburn, but also in other parts of Australia. Um, and in particular, so there was the idea of um, self-determination, the ability to have control of how you run your own affairs, what's best for you, that Aboriginal people know what's best for them, what needs to be done in order to uh, tackle the police harassment that was very intense um, in Redfern, for example, at the time, and I, I focus on Redfern in my book, but of course, a lot of these issues were prevalent in other parts of Australia, in other cities. Um, malnutrition among the children, the, the poor access to education, housing, all those things. Aboriginal people argued that they needed to be able to control the way these are managed, but also importantly, that they had right to self-determination, dating back to the, um, to the uh, what I said earlier, the invasion, and their right as First Nations, as Indigenous peoples, that because that they should have this sort of... And also as a, as a nation, there was a very strong idea of Aboriginal nationhood that sort of formed during the late 1960s, 1970s, that the um, activists in Redfern also tapped into. And that, yeah, so self-determination was elemental in, in, in many different ways, but really, really it played out in the sort of a sense 
need to have Aboriginal control, which is justified by um, the idea of a First Nations rights to self-determination. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. That's really helpful. So thinking a bit about the, the context that made this possible, right, that made this decade, you know, so striking in this place, um, you kind of talk early in the book a bit, a bit about what was happening and allowing this. You know, you said about, and you mentioned just then, like, you know, international First Nations movements, Black Power and the Black Panther Party over in the US and connections there. Um, then you also talk about how just in general, like the new left, a new kind of form of student activism happening and Redfern's obviously near the universities where that's fostering. Um, and then you talk about obviously the the migration to Redfern, you know, of, of Indigenous folks from around uh, these lands now called Australia. And so this, um, and particularly the high population of, of youth uh, mm. migration. I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact number now, but I think you said like 72% uh, or about that of the Aboriginal people living in a, around there were, were under 30. Um, and, there, you know, a huge percentage of that were even teenagers, right? So um, I'm curious a bit about how you see, you know, those movements, th- sorry, those b- broad trends, um, how they kind of laid the ground, how they, uh, yeah, led to... The, the particular flavour of what what was then. Yeah, they're all coming together there, really, in that time and place. Absolutely. So definitely there's the... um, So at the time, so Redfern has a continuing long history of Aboriginal uh, presence and and many families that that I also refer to in the book had lived there in the 1970s for decades and remember and, and really relate to Redfern as their place. But what... What also occurred after the Second World War is increasing number of Aboriginal people migrating to to Sydney, to inner city, and also other metropolises in Australia. But in in Redfern, there were estimates that there were about, or Sydney in general, there were about three thousand Aboriginal people living in 1950 and 1976. That was about fourteen thousand to twenty thousand. And Princess Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs was set up in the early sixties to support these people moving to live in the inner city because every day there were new people coming to Central Railway Station, needing support, needing work, needing and connecting with their families who were already living in inner city and getting support from them. So it's a really radical increase. Um, in the number of Aboriginal people living in inner city. And like you said, um, I, I have actually the numbers here, 43% of them were under 16 in 1973, and um, 79% were uh, under 30. So it was young people who were also pushed by the um, Aboriginal Welfare Board. That was wound up in 1969, um, but, but before that, there was also this movement when it existed still to push especially young people away from reserves, to go and get education, to go and work. Um, and, and often they ended up living in the cities, as well as the, um, the agricultural um, labour disappeared through mechanisation. Um, assimilation policies that pushed or aimed to push Aboriginal people to get education in the city. And, of course, Aboriginal people going... Um, wants to move away from rural areas because they wanted to get a better life for themselves and their children to escape the racism in rural towns. So we're talking about uh, curfews and and, and discrimination and very poor living conditions. Um, So that's the sort of the experience. And then when they come to the city, they um, come across these young people with the 
uh, social radicalism, the new left, as you mentioned, the, uh, the uh, student life, Vietnam uh, protests against the Vietnam War, women's movement, anti-racism movement, um, and, and all of this comes together. Um, and some of the, um, the people, um, like Jenny Munro, commented on um, um, how uh, Sydney was a great place to learn about politics. Also, the LGBTQI movement was taking off where people, so people came across with this uh, young people who maybe had never come across with Aboriginal people before, had no experience with working in Aboriginal organisations and formed links and, 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 and networked with them and then came together, as well as television that brought information from uh, overseas. And, and then there was also visitors like international travel, Charles Perkins travel to United States, to New Zealand, but also there were visitors from overseas coming to Australia who then shared information, like one significant person was Roosevelt Brown, who was involved with the Black Power movement in the Americas. And so there's lots of, lots of things come together that then influence um, these organisations, but also, I guess, create or facilitate, make it possible for them to operate, to sort of to be established and then continue the operation because you really need that support as well as the strong Indigenous initiative and, and work that went into them. Yeah, thank you for that. So the book, the chapters are kind of broken down uh, with individual focuses of groups. So the Aboriginal Legal Service, uh, Aboriginal Medical Service, um, there's one on the Black Theatre, on on uh, women's uh, um, childcare and women's pro- you know, yeah. uh, programs and um, housing and land. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, well, in a moment, we'll dive into a couple of those and, and, and talk a little about them. But I guess, you know, I, I, I'm curious about when you were researching and writing, was there one in particular that really, I guess, you know, was the one that, you know, either that you were most fascinated by or most surprised you? Um, or, yeah, you know, that that really, you know, um, not picking favourites or anything like that, but just like <laughs> one that uh, really kind of, um, yeah, just any any one that surprised you more or or, or, or you know, just kept giving um, in a way that that surprised you. I guess they. I mean, they all. What I also and why I wanted to look at all these organisations, I think, it was because they were all very distinct in the way they operated and also uh, informed by the areas that they worked on. So law versus health had different requirements. Um, so definitely one is to acknowledge the sort of importance of all of them. But I did find like Black Theatre is a fascinating um, movement and organisation at the time and especially um, in the way I learned how, how broad its agenda was. All these organisations had very broad agenda. I mean, they have their field of specialty, but also they all aim to have and make an impact on sort of wide areas relevant to to the community. But black theatre did theatre, dance, but also workshops for youth and and, and children, and uh, had a field officer that did social work or tried to do social work. So that that was something that was really interesting and and that I didn't know to expect because often when we think about black theatre, we think about the performance side of things rather than, again, the the, the things and the work and the the ideas that go into building the community and the community activities. And, of course, Marina was fascinating as a women-only organisation and and often, I guess, um, less well-known it's a uh, legal service, medical service are very well known and acknowledged, but the um, 
the, the, the women's um, organization, childcare and preschool, maybe has had less attention. Um, and, and yet it was part of the same, same movement. Yeah. Thank you. So let's I'll ask about black theatre then first, um, because because you mentioned that there. So one of the things, as you were saying, you know, with this, how broad what some of these groups were doing, and I think something that you, you bring up in uh, earlier in the chapter on black theatre is the way that it was, saw its role in, I guess, cultivating or setting a kind of national Aboriginal identity. Um, and you talk about that kind of in the movement, in the early chapters of people coming to Redfern about this pan-Aboriginal identity mm. and this, this national identity, you know, that um, as so many were, lead, you know, going from their, you know, their country to another country, you know. So um, let's talk a little bit about black theatre in, in the sense of, yes, of, of, of its role and its um, impact in, in, I guess, establishing this sense of a, a national um, identity uh, in, in some respect. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I and and definitely there was that sense of national identity. Um, how should I phrase this? I think also though it's telling of the aims of the theatre. So it, there was a sort of there was a sense and of and it took the idea of the name which was Bob Marzagat when he visited um, New York and saw the National Black Theatre there in action and, and drew from what was going on in, in the United States and also with the First Nations theatre movement there and, and in, applied that in, in Redfern in using theatre as a political tool and, and, and bringing people together and but also advocating for self-determination and for Aboriginal rights and and, and voicing concerns about all the issues like malnutrition, like poor health and so forth. That all sort of played out on the stage. And um, the National Black Theatre represented the desire to, to be in sort of a, a national voice or outlet for these concerns. And, and that was, um, came through, for instance, in the, in the tour that the Black Theatre set out to do, which then, unfortunately, because of lack of funding and, and organisation, did not, um, and 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 it also um, the first that they they headed to Queensland, which was at the time um, that they, they were targeted, and it wasn't there was lots of racism and discrimination at the time still in control of Aboriginal people, so that limited what Aboriginal Black Theatre was able to do. But also it's important to be um, aware that, for instance, Aboriginal people in other parts of Australia and Northern Territory, Western Australia, might not have been aware um, very actively what was going on and might be uh, critical of the, uh, the, the, the inner city uh, people's attempt to sort of represent the whole nation. So that's something which we then see to shifting in the late 70s and 19. 80s, when there's a more sort of uh, develop the, the localized identities gain strength and the idea of a black majority nation and so which exists there, but at the time there was not yet way to talk about it. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's, that's really helpful. Um, so the Aboriginal Legal Service is is actually the first cab off the rank in terms of the the, the organisations you, you you focus on, and I think what's so you know, important, particularly I think reading it in this year or, you know, last year and this year as people are reading it when police violence is, you know, really front and centre on the agenda of a lot of uh, the anti-racist work that's going on and, and police abolition becoming in as an uh, important part of that conversation is, you know, the ALS 
emerging very much out of responses to police violence. Um, and obviously in the chapter, you then show how it it is, like all these things, expands and, and becomes really quite a large um, brief in terms of what it's, uh, you know, focusing on and trying to achieve. But I guess starting with that about its, you know, its, its emergence out of, you know, in an attempt to respond to a real crisis. Because as you said, people, a lot of the, those young um, Aboriginal folks have like left rural places where they're experiencing racism only to be dropped into another whole other kind of, of, of racism um, again and, and, and violence from, from um, government and, and police. So, yeah, talk to us a bit about the, the kind of the, the starting of it in a response to that and then maybe we can talk a bit about where it expands to. Yeah, so, so the police harassment and violence was relentless in Redfern um, and, and there's... Uh, Records from 1960s um, of uh, Francis Cambrindle going and, and and trying to advocate for Aboriginal man who was um, who was shot by police um, at the Newtown station and how he ends up being assaulted. Um, so it, it sort of it was very hard for Aboriginal people to seek justice against police violence, which which was supported by the the government and and there was. Um, no, I'm, this is I had a blank. There's a special squad that, uh, like a riot squad, that was brought into Redfern in the 70s. Um, so it wasn't the local police who always even dealt with Aboriginal populations. That was targeting Aboriginal people and and enforcing an unofficial curfew so that any Aboriginal person who was walking on the streets of Redfern after 10 p.m. or so was automatically arrested or bringing in the um, um, police um, wagons outside um, pubs such as Clifton and Empress that was frequently um, visited by Aboriginal people where they met each other, came together, uh, where people came when they came to city first to see if they could come and meet any relatives. So the police would wait outside the pub after the closing time and, and just put people straight into the, uh, the police wagons and it's also really telling that when Aboriginal people um, when Aboriginal legal service started to sort of uh, take form and some law students from Sydney University um, Peter Tobin and Eddie Newman who had connected with the um, Aboriginal actresses Paul Cole and Gary Williams and Gary Foley and Isabel Cole and, and so forth they um they invited Hal Wooten, who at the time was Dean of Law in at UNSW, to join them to um, in, in a pub to witness this. And Wooten made the con comment that having these people observing police uh, arresting and, and treating Aboriginal people very violently, they didn't stop the police at all. Like, there was no sense that this was not something they should be doing. And that was partially because there was no way that Aboriginal people could seek justice. They had no legal support available to them. Um, and that, yeah, and that was also really important, I guess, in um, in strengthening the sense of Aboriginal, Aboriginality in the city in the way that they were treated and how the, the police and how the city in general tried to, as that kind of sort of... Uh, um, Sorry, that was poor phrasing. But how the, there was a sense that Aboriginal people were out of place in the city, despite all the support networks, but there's also very strong resistance towards their presence in the city. That played out particularly in the context of the police violence. And um, Lester Bostock um, described it as a state of war. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I think that, that's, that's so important to have and um, and have as that, that grounding. And then, so then... It's interesting you talk about there about that the, this the the resistance of the, the Aboriginal people being there and the sense that this wasn't their place a place for them because that very much then ties into a lot that the ALS ends up getting involved in um, 
land rights discussions about you know land in Sydney, um, and and obviously that also ties into um, oh, the um, the group you focus on in the last chapter, the housing uh, housing company, yeah, yeah, housing company, yeah. also uh, addressing this because I mean we've just had uh, Marbo Day was only a little a couple of weeks before this record. Um, and and you kind of talk about in the book that with, you know, kind of some of the discussions that were happening in the 60s and 70s around land rights, it was really just like maybe the Northern Territory and maybe lands that are already reserves. Like it wasn't any kind of sense that it could be the whole of the nation and particularly not the first colonised lands and the now, and the now most, you know, highly developed Sydney. So um, I guess talk a bit about the, both, I guess, the ALS and the housing company um, started to have these conversations and, and I guess maybe some of that, how they tried to manoeuvre against just this, like, it couldn't possibly be. Like, you know, you know, you, you yeah. know as in no one was willing to grant it, you know, an inch of a conversation um, yeah. and they're trying to, you know, navigate that, that, that kind of impasse. Yeah, they're very firmly said this idea that land rights are something that exists somewhere else, somewhere in the sort of outside the urban areas. So legal service, um, and, and initially there was a sort of, I guess, the expectation, wait and, let's wait and see what happens with the Northern Territory land rights legislation, an expectation that that would then expand to other parts of Australia, and in particular as long as Whitlam, Gough Whitlam was in power in, um, since 1972 and bit till 1975 because that's something that he had promised to Aboriginal people. Like the Tent Embassy, for instance, self-determination land rights, are those the issues that were pushed for? But it, so, in, so first the, the, the Aboriginal organisations and, and activists were sort of waiting and, and land rights were more on the back burner. But then in the mid-1970s, they gained momentum and, for instance, Aboriginal Legal Service had land rights on its agenda um, in any way it could. And interestingly, it was supported in this by the government because um, government funding was an important part of the organisation's operations because it, it made the organisations possible, in particular Aboriginal Legal Service, that um, got very generous funding when it was first established. But it came with um, lots of uh, control and, um, and, 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 and limits as to what the organisation is then meant to do. But interestingly, the, uh, the Department of Aboriginal Affairs officials and some of the bureaucrats supported because they felt that the New South Wales government is unlikely to do much at this stage about land rights. So when appropriate, it's good for legal service to push for this. But their sort of their view then changed later. So Aboriginal Legal Service campaigned and it was very soon spread to other parts of New South Wales outside Redfern, also to um, Maori, Warina, and... Um, also in um, in Walgate, and it pushed for land rights in these areas, and um, and argued for the um, yeah the case. For instance, uh, there was a case of Aboriginal man trespassing um, across the RSL, and he was uh, arrested. And the Aboriginal Legal Service supported him in this case and argued for his right to walk through this land as an Aboriginal person. So that was um, was an element of it. But also where the important battles occurred in the context of legal service where there was the court system. So Paul Cole, um, supported by legal service, took the Commonwealth to court. And you mentioned the Marble Day, and I guess the, the most relevant would be the 1979 case, um, Cole versus Commonwealth, where he um, challenged the Commonwealth um, and argued for... Um, Basically, 
challenged the idea of Australia's Terranolius that had this legal fiction that had been established um, and challenged and argued that Aboriginal people were sovereign people and the land was taken from them by conquest and this should be recognised, their, their, their right to land and, and their position as the First Nations should be recognised by the courts. And that was very importantly legal case in introducing those ideas and those concepts that then were pursued by the Marble case um, about 10 years later. Um, but that was that land rights case, oh, that case was unsuccessful in 1979. Yeah, yes, and, and I think it was interesting when you were writing about that case, if I'm getting the right case right, um, you know, talking about how, like, the judges weren't even able to, you know, they were split on even the idea of conquest or settlement um, yep. In terms of how Australia uh, came to be, um, uh, and and you know, like, yes, show you know, it's interesting just just on such a base level, like you know how hard that fight was, and and, and showed to be just to be able to argue for that um, and make any headway. So you know, thank you for that. That's that's really helpful. And also, the other issue there was that the court basically the idea that as a sovereign nation, Australia can't make judgment on itself, and thus it's it's a case that they can't basically. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Make a decision on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting logic that one. But <laughs> um, so um, it was interesting to think, like you know, that the seventies. The seventies always feel like um, I think you know it's that classic thing of we don't realize we're twenty years past the year two thousand. Um, you know, um, I, I shared a joke a while back that was someone else's joke, which was like. Oh, I need to find a, a source. You know, um, this one's thirty years old. It was from the seventies, um, and then you realize, no, no, it's fifty to forty to fifty years ago now. Um, and I guess you know, when you write history or read history, you start to think about the then and the the now and the distance and that which has changed and that which hasn't. Um, and again, like reading it in this last year, I mean, um, obviously, you know, you're writing it before the you know resurgence of protests. Um, that, that, that were kind of um, happened midway through last year and uh, ongoing. And, um, you know, we still know that the, you know, the response to the Royal Commission of Deaths in Custody is non-existent. You know, there's still such high levels of death, still such high levels of, um, you know, gaps in, in all those measurable social um, yeah. uh, things that we measure things by. Um, it's interesting, like, you know, that the book in some ways... I don't know if you feel like whether it, it wrestles between being this story of like a good news story, like look what happened and also, but look what hasn't since. Um, I think it's really, you know, great. The last, the last line being given to professor Gary Foley of um, we believe that we could change the world. Look back now. We did change our world. Um, you know, so, so, you know, it is this story of, of resistance and, um, you know, and, and self-determination, community being formed and um, power being gained, um, but also we know that it wasn't like, and it wasn't the movie ending of this tumultuous decade that led then into um, a flourishing, reconciled, just nation. Um, so I, I guess your thoughts on, you know, finishing and, you know, thinking about that distance, maybe the reception that you felt from, from folks reading the book and reflecting on the time past. Um, yeah, 
I've not quite formed a full question here, but essentially um, this sense of, of, of the, that 40 years to 50 years that between the book and now um, and the legacy from this decade, um, the promises, some fulfilled, some unfulfilled, the trajectory, some maintained, some, you know, because of lack of resourcing and everything else not allowed to continue. Like, yeah, how, how do you feel? How have you felt people reflect and respond to the book, thinking about the gap between then and now? I've, I've been very pleased that, to get very positive feedback in the sort of the, 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 in terms of the way the book highlights the importance of this decade. And I guess it reminds us about all the achievements that were made and all that hope that you mentioned in the beginning that was in the air that we can we can change these things we can make things work up we can you know we can improve all these uh, housing health all these issues and 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 it's possible and also the hope of for self determination that was in the air so and and all the work that went into it um, so that's really important to remember and what was achieved and that sort of so today we have indigenous lawyers indigenous law professors campaigning for Aboriginal rights, like when legal service was first established, it relied, I mean, the support's important for all sorts of reasons for conscious, consciousness raising to get resources, but also there was reliance for on, on non-Indigenous professionals because there were, like, there were people studying law, like Paul Cole, Gary Williams were law students, but they were not practising lawyers that were Indigenous yet. So there was this reliance, and that's not the case anymore so so there are improvements there are changes um there's uh, more support for indigenous like if we think about rural statement from the heart and from that context there's clearly support for indigenous voice uh, and indigenous representations and and support for indigenous people or first nations be able to have a say in affairs that relate to them which was also relevant in the 1970s, which was relevant in the 1920s, 1930s. But then there's this tension that I also talk about in my book. So from the very beginning, there's this idea of self-determination, but there's different ideas of the self-determination. For Aboriginal activists, it means self-determination in the context of Indigenous rights, but for the government, it's more, it, it becomes, I mean, it shifts and changes, but it becomes more an avenue, a pathway, to equality and a way to, to achieve equal rights and equal treatment. And, and there's the sort of the tension there that could be creative, I guess, too, but also undermines the operation of these organisations and Aboriginal control and, and the way they see that um, they would like to make an impact. And this tension has increased and, and I guess... Then in the 1976, we saw face the government come to power and introduce policy of self-management. Uh, we see then sort of decades later, Tony Abbott, who introduces the idea of tendering. So medical services, Aboriginal medical services have to compete with other health organisations to be able to offer services for Aboriginal people. So this, this increasing um, commercialisation, that impacts the whole sector, not just the Indigenous, but it's, of course, plays out here. And that, but that was already there um, in the beginning because it's a mainstream way of delivering services and, and, and putting policies in practice and the Indigenous demand for self-determination self that plays out there. And 
but I guess it's important to remember that hope and the way things have also improved from from that era. And and <clears throat> it's it's a really difficult question how to sort of and and there are, and 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 then you have difficulty formulating the question. I and it's hard to sort of answer it nearly. But I guess one thing that maybe is sort of to say that in the book there is always hope and all this excitement that that is really important to acknowledge. But I also wanna express so a bit critical in the book about the settler colonial in inability to recognize indigenous rights and sovereignty and self-determination, while at the same time not being able to deliver equal rights and outcome for Aboriginal people. And and that I think um is the, the, the sort of really disappointing thing. So if we think about Black Lives Matter, it's about equal rights. Um, the way we can go into a better sort of uh, future is something to be debated, but it's no-brainer. Uh, I think that all like the, uh, the, 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 the edge of legal responsibility and the fact that it's 10 years in Australia, I just, it's outrageous. And disadvantages Aboriginal youth uh, disproportionately. So... Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's a really helpful um, answer. Well, the book, folks, which I'm sure everyone is very excited to get, it is a great read. It is a really uh, important story Is uh, uh, from, from the history of this land. It's Redfern, Aboriginal Activism in the 1970s, out now with Aboriginal Studies Press. There's endorsements by Professor Gary Foley, by Leah Purcell, uh, and a bunch of others. It is, it's really, I definitely recommend folks um, pick up the book if you haven't already. Uh, Johanna, thank you for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything else you want to uh, promote, draw people's attention to, anything like that? Thank <laughs> no, I can't think of anything right now. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been great. It's been great. Thank you all. Everyone. Any Indigenous issues or First Nations causes, of course, but yeah. Yes. Yeah, good. Find um, out and call and listen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, Thank you for coming on the pod. Everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you all next week. Bye.